I'm really scared, and my heart is pounding hard. I've pulled off the curving mountain road on what turns out to be the top of a steep driveway, leading down to the house of the medicine woman, whom I just met on the phone only a couple of weeks earlier. I'm sitting and staring down the driveway between a thick overhang of foliage on a beautiful clear night that should feel magical, but instead feels full of dread. I take a couple of deep breaths, trying to calm myself. I feel crazy. My mind, which was so focused on getting me here, is now suddenly betraying me, leaving me to feel vulnerable in ways that I hate. In this moment, I'm pounded by the same terrifying feelings I felt in past experiences when I put myself in situations that it's a miracle I live to tell. The scariest aspect of those incidents was that whether I lived or died was in someone else's hands. And that lack of control may explain how I'm feeling here, in my car, at the top of this driveway, as I try to get my bearings. I want to be grateful for this moment, for this opportunity, but a feeling of helplessness floods me. All I can think to do is pray with all my heart as sincerely as possible. My hands pressed together, I try desperately to steady my mind. Don't be afraid, I tell myself. You're in peaceful, beautiful Ojai. Why are you so scared? Because, I answer right back, what if this actually kills me? Three months earlier in the wake of my 40th birthday, my biggest worry was, well, what if it doesn't? For two decades, I had been putting on a good face, going with the flow, telling everyone I was okay. Yet underneath bouts of depression and overwhelming hopelessness had smoldered until they turned into raging hellfire in my broken heart. Unwelcome feelings of not deserving love made it harder to understand the disconnect between the so-called perfect life I had achieved and the well of loss I carried with me. Therapy helped up to a point. It got me to 40. But to what end? I would later be diagnosed and informed that I suffer from complex trauma with PTSD and dissociation. But without this guidepost, I was a chronic mess with no fix, no possibility to heal. Every morning, waking up was like walking the plank of doom. Could I make it to 4 p.m.? If I could, I had survived the day. I always wanted to sleep, but I never slept well. My children put a smile on my face and were my only motivation to keep me going. But more and more, I could feel myself losing my grip of connection to them. With all of this, I was slammed by the reality that I'd been checking off boxes meant to define being enough, to deserve having it all. What that meant to me was that I would be enough to be loved in a way that life didn't hurt anymore. Those boxes I'd been checking had not delivered the gifts that had been promised. I followed the rules. The rules were told to follow. You work hard, make sacrifices for those you love. The rules tell you, be a doting mother and a doting wife. Do the work required and life turns into paradise. 
Nope. A loving relationship, harmony, peace. That happiness had yet to be delivered. On paper, it all looked grand. I had the beautiful family, the superstar husband, the lavish lifestyle, fame, and fortune. I had my own career, the freedom and support to pursue creative outlets. The sweetest part was my kids, Jaden, Willow, and my bonus son, Trey, my three favorite people in the world. They were, hands down, the best thing that ever happened to me. Yet none of that prevented me from hitting the wall I was speeding toward at 100 miles per hour, knowing full well this shit's gonna blow. I had sought help everywhere you can imagine, from goddess gatherings, silent yoga retreats, backpacking alone, studying every religion you can think of, you name it. I even went to Cuba and met with a padrino. That was intense. None of it offered a lasting solution. Adding to my distress, Will and I weren't in a good place and hadn't been for a while. I couldn't make it right no matter how hard I tried. We couldn't hear or see each other at all. Confiding in my close friends seemed unfair to them and to Will and me. And so, by Thanksgiving, I'd fallen into despair and wanted to be on this earth less and less. This was not living. Suicidal thoughts were not completely new to me. What was new? I began to think about how to have a fatal accident that wouldn't look intentional for the sake of my kids. If I remained the way I was, what good would I be to them anyway? Besides, I told myself, they would be okay. They would have their father, a devoted and great dad. Their being okay in my mind depended on me doing a good job of making my death appear to be conclusively accidental. As grim as it may sound, the world had become less heavy now that I had a solution, a plan for my own exit, and I was resolved. A somber steeliness took hold. Driving around a turn on Mulholland Drive a few times, I settled on a specific cliff that might work. I'd have to summon the courage to drive fast over the side, probably at night. Fatal car accidents happened all the time on Mulholland. My only hesitation was that I might not die. Being practical, I pulled over to assess how steep the cliff was. Maybe in that moment I scared myself. Maybe I couldn't do it. I hated to imagine what would happen if it was a situation where I drove my car off the road and over the wrong cliff only to paralyze or disfigure myself. That would be a much worse nightmare for my children than losing me for good. Clearly, I would have to find higher, steeper cliffs somewhere, maybe outside of L.A., on my way to Big Sur, and that became the revised plan. But before following through, the universe intervened, in our living room, no less. It was there that a conversation took place that got my attention. Moises, age 17, and his brother Mateo, 15, are two of Jaden's very good friends and have been like surrogate sons to me. Out of the blue, Jaden summoned me from the kitchen into the living room because he wanted me to hear the story Moises and Mateo were sharing about their father. They started to tell me about a trip their father, Caesar, had taken to Peru. 
They were really excited to share news of Caesar's experience with me, knowing that I'm a spiritual seeker like their dad. Mateo and Moises proceeded to explain that the expedition Caesar had made to Peru for 11 days was to experience ayahuasca. As I continued to listen, I became both hopeful and curious. Caesar happened to be in town, and I was eager to hear about his story firsthand, so we planned to meet at my house. He soon gave me a full graphic description of a life-changing experience. He explained that ayahuasca is a drink made from a plant that comes from the Amazon. His journey sounded daunting as he told me about it. Caesar, who is Colombian, speaks with a heavy musical accent. He described how ayahuasca was a deep psychological healer for him in ways he thought were impossible. He said it removed energy that masqueraded as physical ailments. I had known Caesar for a while, and I'd never seen his eyes as clear, as bright as they were at this meeting. He was evidence that Aya isn't some newfangled recreational drug trip. Actually, it isn't a drug at all. It is medicine and has been for centuries. The light in his eyes inspired me, his presence so glowing that I wanted whatever he had found. As soon as I started asking around, I was surprised by how quickly the universe opened a door for me to meet Mother Aya. A therapist friend of mine said, Oh yeah, I've done it several times. I couldn't believe it. This is available right here in California? I don't have to go to Peru? She explained that a medicine woman she had worked with lived 15 minutes away, and she could arrange a journey for me as soon as I was ready. I couldn't arrange my ceremony fast enough. At this point, my level of desperation was so all-consuming. All I could think was, what do I have to lose? If it killed me, great, mission accomplished. If not, thank God. Yet here I am, one month later, just after New Year's Eve, coincidentally, the 14th anniversary of my marriage to Will, sitting in my car at the top of this hill in Ojai, debating whether I should drive down this driveway or not. A memory surfaces. It was a hot, muggy Baltimore summer day on a weekend outing to Beaver Dam Park, where the rock quarries cliffs supported a platform that could be used as a high dive into the freezing cold water below. At age seven, I had daringly chosen to climb to the highest platform along with teens and adults. A sign was posted with the prominent warning, jump at your own risk. When I looked over the edge, I saw the risk I had chosen to take. I stood there, frozen for hours. I watched people jump off that wooden platform over and over. It started to become a thing that there was a little girl too afraid to jump. Everyone who climbed up tried to give me encouragement. It's not bad at all. It's easy. You can do it. I heard as folks went flying off toward that cold water and playful summertime bliss. Many would yell back to me once they resurfaced, See? It's fun! Go ahead and jump! I stood there in limbo for so long that the point came when my mother yelled up at me, Enough! You have to jump, Jada! Come on! Finally, I walked to the edge and jumped. Though I hit the water hard and it stung, I felt proud of myself that I'd done it. And the sting was worth the accomplishment. I'd conquered fear. 
I swam to shore, and it was a great day. With that memory, I mustered the courage to get out of the car. After grabbing the apples, oranges, and flowers, I have brought as an offering to Mother Earth and Mother Aya and to any other divine energies out there willing to look over me tonight. I'm on my hands and knees at the top of the driveway praying. Please show me the truth I need to see, but please be gentle. Please, please show me if there is something wrong with me and show me how to heal it and give me the courage to do so. After getting back in the car, I take a deep breath and proceed slowly down the driveway, remembering Caesar's words, once you go in, you can't change your mind. No matter how hard it might get, the only way out is the way through. Before I can tell you what transpired over the next four nights, and about the even more perilous but magnificent adventure that was to begin there, I must go back to the beginning. One of the biggest lessons I've learned, which is the main reason I wrote this book, is how important it is to share our journeys to self-worth. Returning to the scene of the deepest betrayals of our heart, buried in our origin story, is a harrowing process. It is like crawling on our stomach through a jungle of thorns and roses. A lot of stories await us. In the words of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, whose Women Who Run With the Wolves has been a Bible to me since I was 19 years old, I am a well-written-upon woman. Most of us are. Many of us, as women, to one degree or another, don't recognize the insidious ways we are made to feel unworthy. My belief is that every woman is worthy, a walking treasure, and deserves to live her life as the heroine of her own story. A woman has a right to her adventures, even if it means courting her shadows as guides to her brightest light. And she has a right to her pitfalls as well as her triumphs. And to the wisdom gained that leads to her self-actualization. When we as women have the courage to find keys to the treasure chest of ourselves, we find divine freedom, a freedom that is not whimsical. And with this, our lives are deliberately and unapologetically crafted by our own hands. My hope is that you will be encouraged and strengthened by the journey I'm about to share with you.